Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we're going to talk about a new book that's out called How Terror Evolves, The Emergence and Spread of Terrorist Techniques. And we have Dr. Yannick Villeneuve-Lepage, and I'm sure I probably destroyed the middle of your name because it's always so hard to pronounce, but thank you for being on the show, Yannick. Absolutely my pleasure. For our listeners, Yannick is an assistant professor in the Institute of Security and Global Affairs at the University of Leiden in The Hague. So he's joining us from the Netherlands today, and I hope it's beautiful over there. We are, of course, the day before the U.S. elections, so it's a beautiful day here. We'll see what tomorrow is like. (laughs) But why don't we discuss your book? I'm so excited that it's out because I know you've spent so much time and so many years working on this um, as a former colleague of yours or a former working colleague of yours. I saw you working on it throughout the years. So congratulations first for having this book out. Thank you very much. And in, in many ways, I was very lucky that I had very good colleagues where I had a chance to, to work on this book first at the University of St. Andrews, but then uh, with you and several of the other PhD students that were working closely with me at uh, Georgia State University and later on when I finished a book at uh, at Leiden University. So as the acknowledgement says, uh, a large part of credit has to do with with people like you with whom I was able to bounce ideas and and have draft looked at. So, you know, in in many ways, some of the credit belongs to to you and many others. Uh, Well, like I said, I'm thrilled that it's out. And why don't you just tell our listeners what the inspiration for your book was? Why did it come about and how did it evolve? So the book essentially started as part of my doctoral thesis. And originally the idea was to do a long history of political violence. The existing literature on terrorism seems to have two main starting points. Uh, the first one is in 1960, particularly in like 1968, when we start seeing Palestinian uh, terrorism become quite active, we start seeing a lot of very high impact events, uh, hijacking of airplanes, the Munich, uh, Munich Olympic massacre, uh, the, uh, um, the airport attacks in, uh, in Israel, and, and so on. The other kind of starting point that the literature tends to kind of draw on is 9-11. This is kind of what what large survey of the literature is going to show you is this, this kind of profound lack of deep historical research. So that was my original goal. And this was based on, on the critiques that existed of, of existing literature, particularly within uh, critical terrorism studies that were kind of decrying this rather short historical focus that, uh, that exists in the literature. And what I was essentially interested in understanding is how did manifestation of political violence change over time? And particularly, was it possible to do a genealogy of terrorism? Now, my first attempts at at writing uh, this project used a template that's quite similar uh, and that we can see kind of in the works of of Randall Law in his A History of Terrorism or the work of of Shadiyan and Bling uh, from Antiquity to to Al-Qaeda where they, they use what I, I, I respectfully use, the, the cookie cutter approach, uh, where there's 
the common manifestation of terrorism, essentially what we understand terrorism to be today. And then there's an attempt to go back in history and say, is there manifestation of political violence that have very similar uh, elements to it? And through this approach, there's a kind of common narrative that has been created where people draw comparison to modern day terrorism, to the, the violence that was perpetrated by the uh, Jewish zealots in the first century Judea or by the Ashashin in the 11th century and so on. But what always troubled me with that approach is how do we engage in some process tracing? How can we argue, how can we demonstrate that the type of political violence that happened 2000 years ago or 900 years ago actually had a demonstrable impact in how we think about political violence today? So instead what I sought to do is use one manifestation of political violence, one technique, which is hijacking, and just draw back the history, starting with 9-11 and then going deep into the, the annals of, uh, of hijacking, both politically motivated hijacking and, and criminal hijacking, all the way to the first instances of hijacking, which happened in the 1930s, and say, okay, so what happened? How did we go from hijacking mail planes in the 1930s to crashing planes into buildings in 2001. And for me, reading your book, I was fascinated to actually find out that there was a hijacking in the 1930s. Because for me, even as a researcher and scholar in the field, I always think of the hijackings of, say, the 60s and 70s. That's sort of like the heyday in my mind. And then, of course, 9-11. But it was fascinating to realize that there is this huge history of it. So unraveling that, how did you, how did you do that? You talked about process tracing. So why don't we discuss how you tracked down your cases and created this amazing book with this research? So the first step was creating a database of hijacking events. And so, so like most researchers, what I've done is I, I essentially looked to see if anybody had already done the work for me. Um, and, and I started by looking at the Global Terrorism Database, which is often seen as kind of the gold standard for um, you know, event-based uh, research. The, the, the team at the University of Maryland has done this fantastic job collecting individual instances of political violence ranging from you know, failed plots to uh, high casualty incidents over uh, decades. But what I realized is that there was only that there was a great amount of data that was missing in this database. Um, there's only about 250 hijacking listed in the global terrorism database, whereas the data set that I've created uh, for my book used over a thousand uh, instances. And there's there's several reasons to why that may be the case, um, but that was essentially the first step: was immerse myself in the data, create this database using uh, historical news articles, using archives, using interviews with insurance firms. Um, several insurance, firm, or insurance firms have, have kept very detailed record uh, of hijacking throughout the years, but also aviation security experts uh, and so on. 
And that involved essentially collecting information on, you know, very basic um, kind of data points like the date of the hijacking, the airline, the make and model, the flight numbers, the departure, the destination, you know, the diversion of, of the flight path, the name of the perpetrators, their, their biographical information, whether they were linked to an organization, their grievances and, and kind of the outcome but more specifically, and I think this is where my, my research departs from a lot of other work, is I focus extensively on the makeup of the technique, the MO, if you will. How did the hijack, how was the hijacking plan? How was it orchestrated? How did authorities respond tactically to the hijacking while it was in progress? And from there, I was able to essentially immerse myself in this data and start looking for patterns, start looking for links, start looking for interviews with former perpetrators or victims of, uh, of hijacking, and essentially create this genealogy, tracing back events to previous events, looking for previous source of inspiration, looking for patterns that emerged in, in the techniques or in, the, in, in the, the physical manifestation of the hijacking itself. And one of the things I found interesting that you have this amazing data set with so many instances of hijackings. And I really loved how you use evolutionary theory to discuss these hijacking incidents, excuse me. So why don't we talk about that a bit? Because as you said, it, it really is an evolution and it also is, um, like you said, genealogy and so forth. So why use evolutionary theory in this research? So, and this is, I, I think, one of the most contentious aspect uh, of my book itself is this, this link to evolutionary theory. And essentially, the idea behind it is that if you look at Darwinian evolution as a whole, and you essentially strip it of its biological features, what you notice is that it's a system to, or it, it's, it's a series of assumptions to explain complex changes in a very complex system. And what I mean by this, that the core of Darwinian evolution is the notion that there is variation, right? And, and we see variations, for example, in organism. Without variation, there would be no diversity. Secondly, there's a aspect of transmission uh, or inheritance. Essentially, variation mechanism by these variations are replicated. And lastly, there's an element of selection. And this is what we call in, in biological term, natural selection, right? And this means that, that variations which are deemed favorable are rewarded in the sense that the organism will reproduce and therefore reproduce that, that variation which is seen as beneficial or variations which are deemed harmful to, to the organism are going to be windowed out. Um, organisms that have these harmful variations will, relative to other organisms, not be able to reproduce as many offsprings uh, or will have a lower chance of survival and that variation will not continue on. So what I took from this complex uh, set of assumption was three aspects. The notion that variation had to occur. Secondly, 
the notion that there needs to be a mechanism that leads to variation, uh, to the transmission of variation. And lastly, there needs to be a mechanism that selects uh, these variations, essentially rewards variations that are seen as helpful and those that are seen uh, and punishes or windows out variations that are seen as, as harmful. Now, my unit of analysis, rather than being organism or genes, is the technique itself. So I essentially ask three guiding questions throughout this book. So how is it that hijacking or variations of hijacking emerges? How are these variations transmitted and replicated? And lastly, what explains the adoption and replication of these particular variation? Why is it that other that groups will, uh, for example, adopt hijacking, whereas other groups will attempt it and, and then fail and never do it again? Or other groups will simply never engage in that in that particular technique. And if we were to kind of step away from hijacking, I think the system is very helpful to help us think about other forms or other techniques of political violence. So for example, if we're if we're interested in suicide bombing, we would ask the first question, which is how did suicide bombing come to emerge? What are the what is the context? What is the setting? that led to the emergence of suicide bombing. How is it that suicide bombing was transported from one conflict to another? So we've, we've seen this kind of global diffusion of suicide bombing, it being employed by, by groups like Hamas and Hezbollah and the Islamic State, but also by secular groups like the LTTE in Sri Lanka. And then the last question is, why do some groups adopt suicide bombing, whereas others won't? And the example I often like to use here is looking at um, violent dissident Republican groups like the PIRA uh, or, or ethno-nationalist group like ETA. Uh, both these groups were engaged in a very bloody protracted conflicts, but suicide bombing never entered their, their repertoire. So why is that? So those that's essentially where evolutionary theory comes in for me, is that it structures my thinking uh, in order to force me to ask three questions. How does a new technique emerge? How is it spread? And lastly, why is it replicated? And I think that's a great point in this talk to actually discuss those three questions. So why don't we start off with the first one? And why was hijacking taken on by certain groups while it wasn't by others? Okay, so that particular question would deal in many ways with the, the third aspect, which is essentially the, the notion of adoption. Um, why hijacking emerged is, is very interesting in, in many ways, because it deals specifically with the context in which it occurs. And in my book, I think one of the, the other very contentious claim that I make relates to how environmental factors can lead to new techniques. So new techniques of political violence can emerge because of new technology. And this is kind of the the moment, right? Uh, you know, it was impossible for mail bombs to exist, 
prior to the invention of, of dynamite, which meant it was it was possible for individuals to to carry safely and to mail explosive, which is something you couldn't do, for example, with nitroglycerin or you know gunpowder. But another aspect that leads us to, to uh, new techniques, other than new uh, technological uh, openings, also has to do with adopting a technique that is used by a state adversary. And this is one of the arguments I make in the book, is that it seems that terrorists, rebels, insurgents generally gain inspiration from the state. And this is what we see in the first case of hijacking, uh, which occurs in Peru in the early 1930s. And for me, this is one of the most fascinating story uh, that I've uncovered. Is essentially hijacking begins within the context uh, of a an insurgency. And in the 1930s, the airplanes that were flying over Peru were owned by Pan Am. And these were, uh, these were mostly mail planes. Uh, but there was a clause in uh, Pan Am's contract with the Peruvian government that essentially said that in the case uh, of war or unrest, the Peruvian government was allowed to repossess these particular planes in order to serve their national interests. And what they did is that they essentially repossessed some Pan Am planes and used them in order to drop propaganda on rebel-held territory. And what's fascinating is almost immediately after uh, these first uh, propaganda campaign, or there was these these leaflet drops, we start seeing uh, the Peruvian rebels take over airfields in order to capture airplanes and then force captured pilots to go and drop uh, pro-rebel propaganda on uh, on uh, loyalist cities. So in many ways here, we can see that the, the, the inspiration behind the technique came from state uh, behavior. And, and we have many examples of this, uh, you know, in... in slightly more contemporary example of this would have or would be the use of orange jumpers uh, or jumpsuits in Islamic State propaganda in many way being, you know, it is an attempt by Islamic, the Islamic State to remind its audience of the Islam, of the, the orange jumpsuit used in Guantanamo Bay. Um, so we see how one of the causes uh, of terrorist innovation is essentially individuals copying state behavior. And I think that's very interesting because in my head, I, I think of other instances that I've seen where, like you said, groups do copy behavior in one way or another of a state or actually of also a, a prominent individual that has gotten a lot of attention. What other hijackings have we seen in the past that show this evolution of copying states and how this technique and this tactic evolved really? 
So one of the other, I think, very interesting um, example of this kind of copying of, of the state uh, comes from a... So after the first Palestinian hijacking in 1968, the Israeli government being you know, fed up by uh, PFLP's action and particularly the fact that Arab states was giving free passage to members of PFLP and allowing them to host uh, training camp, particularly in Jordan and providing them financial uh, support, for example, uh, uh, Syria. They responded to the first hijacking with something called Operation GIF. And Operation GIF took place um, at the airport in Beirut. And essentially a commando of, of Israeli special forces arrive at the airport in the middle of the night, identified every airplane on the tarmac, which had, uh, which was owned by an Arab state. And these airplanes were empty um, and destroyed them. Uh, essentially put an explosive devices on the nose and in the landing gear of these airplanes and detonated them all on the tarmac. And the idea here was to essentially extract a large financial cost uh, for Arab states that had supported the PFLP. Now, what's fascinating behind this is that immediately after the Palestinian hijackers, PFLP hijackers, and, and kind of uh, affiliated groups change how hijackings uh, essentially take place. So once a, a plane is hijacked and is diverted, the plane are evacuated uh, from their passengers, and the planes are systematically destroyed uh, in order, according to the PFLP, to extract a similar financial costs for states that are supporting Israel. So this is one example of, of what essentially becomes a cat and mouse game uh, between the PFLP and uh, Israeli counterterrorism uh, uh, policies and, and, and practice in, in the 1970s and, and so on. And why is it, do you think that we sort of saw, I guess, at least in my mind, I'm sure you as an expert in this would say differently, but almost a the heyday of hijacking during this period, especially with the PFLP. Um, because like I said, at the starting of the talk, I kind of see the late 1960s and then into the 70s as sort of the heyday of hijacking. And, and you can see the old reels of planes on the tarmac and so forth. So why do you think that that was adopted so much during that time period? So there's a couple of factors that, that come into play to explain what happens in the, in 68 and, and onwards. Um, so the first one is after um, the, the, uh, the 1967 war, it becomes quite clear, I believe to, to Palestinians that liberation or at the very least the, the, the goal of self-determination wasn't going to be delivered by an Arab military uh, victory. We also started seeing that Israeli security forces become quite good at countering 
a great deal of PFLP actions uh, on the ground, whether it be land incursions uh, or, or plots within Israel. At the same time, there is a large growth in the aviation industry. And there's a particular hijacking that is, a, that is not related uh, to terrorism that occurs a couple of months beforehand that gets a great amount of international uh, publicity. And I, I make the argument that that previous hijacking, this non-political hijacking that happened in the early 19, in early 1968 was most likely the source of the inspiration uh, for the PFLP. But what we see happening is that with the first hijacking, which is the hijacking of LL-19, uh, the LL-246, um, it essentially leads to a great amount uh, of publicity. It's largely seen as as a um, it's largely seen as a victory from uh, the the point of view of uh, the PFLP, and it leads to the it, it leads to a kind of uh, a diffusion of this technique amongst many other groups. So this is one of the the aspect of uh, one of the things that I argue in the book is that while hijacking existed prior to, to 1968, as I, I've mentioned, what the Palestinians do is they globalize hijacking. They bring it to the forefront as a means of, of, political, uh, of, of uh, political contention. And it's in turn adopted by various other uh, um, uh, ideologically minded uh, groups and individuals. At the same time, there's something that I think is quite fascinating that occurs uh, in the United States is you also have the emergence of criminally minded hijacking. And these are essentially hijacking that are not political and are mostly done uh, as a mean of extorting money from, from airlines or uh, governments. So what we start seeing during this period is we have this mixture of criminally minded hijacking, but also hijackings that are, are, are used by a wide array of politically minded individuals with different causes. So ranging from, from you know, Basque uh, nationalists to, um, to attempts by the IRA to, to engage in hijackings to the Palestinians to individuals that are sympathizers to the Palestinian cause, but have no formal links to any Palestinian liberation uh, organization, but also groups in the United States. Uh, so, so groups that are linked with uh, black nationalism and also Cuban um, uh, dissidents or individuals that are, are seeking to go to Cuba uh, for political reason. So what we start seeing is in the late 1960s, 1970s, hijacking is diffused globally through, uh, through media and is adopted by various groups. I think one of, of course, the 
major incidents that a lot of people think about when it comes to using airplanes and, and terrorism is, of course, 9-11. And I'm always shocked that there is a generation that never experienced that yet uh, or experienced the day, let's put it that way. I always look at undergrads, especially this year, and have to remind myself they weren't around during that time. Um, but why post 9-11 do you think that we've actually seen less of the use of airplanes and hijacking? Is it more the strict security that has been initiated since 9-11 or is terror evolving in a different way? So one of the arguments that I make in, in the book is that when we go back to this notion of kind of selection pressures, right, or selection criteria, what leads to a technique being adopted or rejected? I essentially argue that there's three important elements. The first one is the effectiveness. So how effective is a particular technique in bringing about the political objective that is, is sought? The second aspect is feasibility. How feasible is it to affect a particular technique? And lastly, how legitimate is this, is this technique seen uh, through the eyes of, of the people who perpetrate the technique, but also their kind of wider decisions, the people that they're trying to cater to or they're trying to appeal to. And what's very interesting with the 9-11 case is that really what we do see is a large change in the feasibility of the technique. Immediately after 9-11, it becomes clear that essentially placating hijackers is an extremely uh, dangerous proposition. The thing to remember is that pre-9-11, um, essentially kind of, um, I would say, thinking about hijacking was that hijackers would seek safe passage. Uh, and in many ways, one of the safest way to to uh, to see the end of a hijacking is to allow for this safe passage to occur and then to arrest the individuals once they're on the ground. And there's a long history uh, that I go uh, through in the book that explains where this thinking kind of came from. Um, and, and this is what I call the Havana rule. So essentially the notion that as long as a, pa as a hijacker didn't threaten the crew or didn't threaten the aircraft itself, the best way to deal with the hijacking is to let it kind of run its course and wait for the plane to be on the ground itself. Now, what 9-11 has shown us is the danger of, of such a proposition. And I think the important kind of takeaway here for security uh, uh, practitioner is the fact that in many ways, one of the factors that contributed to uh, to the events of 9-11 is the fact that our thinking about hijacking had remained largely unchanged for the 40 years that preceded it. That makes a lot of sense, actually, in the sense that what you just said, there is this evolution and it's also the way we look at it versus maybe how it actually evolves. And one of the things I found very interesting in your book is you talk about hijacking, but the symbolic meaning of it. And I wanted to unpack that a bit because anywhere from 
pre 9-11 to post 9-11, there is a lot of symbology attached to these acts. And it's for both the perpetrators as well as the victims. So let's discuss that a bit. Yeah, so I think one of the things that's important to, to keep in mind is that in the early days of aviation, the link between aviation and nationalism was extremely strong. Um, national airlines were seen as ambassadors of the state. And, and we see this as early as the 1930s, where you have uh, prominent individuals in Central America essentially hosting receptions, collecting money in order to buy plane and donate them uh, to, to their government as, a, as an act of patriotism and as a display of nationalism. And this continues on. Um, and as a result of that, airlines become, particular, or, or airlines and airplanes become clear targets uh, for, for people that are, are seeking to bring about uh, political, uh, political change. And this is very well demonstrated in uh, during the Cuban Revolution. So one of the kind of interesting, or one of the things I find quite interesting when we're looking at the, the history of hijacking is, as a lot of Americans are, are familiar with, there was this wave of hijacking, say, from the United States to Cuba in uh, the 1970s. But most interesting to me is the fact that uh, Cuban revolutionary, uh, particularly under the guise of Raul Castro, orchestrated a campaign of hijacking in Cuba during the Cuban Revolution as a way of uh, as a way of targeting the regime of uh, Batista, which had strong links with Air Cubana. So we 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 see this very very long history of individuals targeting airlines because of the close links between airlines and government, right? It's, it's also no coincidence that the first flight that the PFLP hijacks is an LL flight. And in fact, the PFLP routinely continues to try, although without any success, to target LL flights afterwards. So this is where this kind of link between uh, nationalism and and of uh, aviation comes from. But what's also quite interesting, and this isn't a topic that I covered uh, a great deal in the book itself, but I've written an article uh, a couple months ago with a colleague of mine in Durham University, uh, where we look at the Islamic State's drone program. And what we did is we did a survey of about 500 pieces of, of ISIS propaganda. And what we realized is that imagery that are taken from drones actually show us that drones aren't very effective on the battlefield themselves, but rather that ISIS uses imagery of drones on the battlefield, imageries of drones surveying territory as a way of expanding a kind of uh, vertical claim of sovereignty, saying, you know, we don't only control, um, but through drones, we're able to control control the air just like a regular state does right because nowadays territorial control is no longer 
two-dimensional there is the spatial element which is which is uh crucial for sovereignty and i know in your book you talk about using hijackings as a means of political contention and i'm sure we can equate what you just said about drones as well and i want to discuss that a bit because as you just displayed with the drone case there really is this idea of adopting what a state is using for yourself as a non-state actor and and using it as a way of contention yeah and essentially this kind of comes to to i mean it's a slightly uh it can be seen as a slightly pedantic distinction that i make uh in the book but i i try to stay away from talking about terrorism in itself and going more with the notion of kind of violent contention or violent techniques of contention. And the reason I do so has to do with this, uh, the, the large amount of ambiguity around the term terrorism. And I essentially decided to kind of, rather than, than continuing in these large protracted debates about what is and what isn't terrorism, right? It feels like almost every te- book about terrorism starts off with the obligatory chapter trying to define the term itself. So rather what I've done is I've kind of returned to, to larger understanding of contentious politics uh, in my understanding of, of uh, political violence and focus mostly on this notion of violent contention. So how do individuals bring forward political change through violent means without getting stuck in this kind of torny definitional debate. And there's, there's, there's a, a practical reason for this as well. Um, and that is that it, in some ways it de-exceptionalizes terrorism. And I think this is something that's quite unfortunate in a lot of current terrorism literature is that when we are looking at a group, whether it's a group like the Islamic State or a group like Hamas, we tend to focus on the terroristic techniques, right? We tend to focus on, on, in the case of Hamas, you know, the Qassam rockets, the suicide bombing. But in reality, a group like Hamas doesn't only have violent techniques within their repertoire. It's not the only mean by which they seek to bring political change. They also have, uh, you know, an international presence. They do lobbying. They're active. Uh, internationally, they run charities and, and and so on, and we see the same thing with the Islamic State. You know, while it perpetrates you know unspeakable atrocity, it also engages in a lot of nonviolent activity in order to bring about its political its political um, its political aim. And this is where I think it's it's helpful to perhaps step away from the definition of terrorism which exceptionalizes the violent acts and look more kind of this global uh notion of uh, contentious politics within which there are some violent acts that that falls under the label of terrorism and in your opinion and from your research how does political contention and the techniques used by groups change over time. And why don't we discuss it with some examples? I mean, I know you've talked about the birth of 
hijacking and we talked about 9-11 a bit and, and things in between, but looking at it broadly, how do we see this evolution take place and potentially what might that mean for the future? So, I mean, one of the things that I, I'm hoping people will be able to do with, with this particular book, particularly with the, the framework itself, is apply it to other techniques of political violence and, and essentially be able to understand where a phenomenon comes from. But also, I do think it allows us to predict or, or at least to make some prediction about where certain forms of political violence are, are going to go. So one of the one of the the other techniques of political violence I, I've written about in the last few years is um, vehicle ramming, which uh, American audience will be particularly aware of uh, based on, on the event that's happened in in the summer itself, uh, where, where we've seen over 100 cases of, of vehicle ramming uh, taking place in the United States within the, uh, the context of, uh, of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. But if we essentially kind of step back and look at the technique as it is, what we can, what we're able to, to recognize is that there's actually been three different strains uh, of vehicle ramming that's occurred uh, historically, the first one being this Palestinian strain that emerged in 1986, uh, 1987 uh, and was eventually diffused uh, and, and adopted by jihadi Salafist groups, first uh, individuals that had an allegiance to, to Al-Qaeda and was popularized by groups like Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, but also by the Islamic State and was repeated over and over, uh, particularly during the summer of 2015, 2016, by, um, by individuals that had uh, allegiances uh, to uh, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. And then what we saw happening is the, the emergence of essentially retrib- uh, 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 vehicle ramming as a form of retribution. And one of the clearest examples of this happened on uh, June 19th, 2017, uh, and that's the fin- Finsbury Park Mosque uh, attack when a, a, an individual named Darren Osborne, who was linked to the far-right group uh, Britain First, essentially drove down to London and deliberately hit um, uh, worshippers that were leaving the Finsbury Park Mosque. And immediately after the incident, he, he, was, he was arrested he was apprehended uh, first by, by bystanders and eventually by police, but he articulated the fact that he had done this because he wanted to kill Muslims, and particularly that he had done this as a form of vengeance for the London Bridge vehicle ramming attack that had happened two weeks previously. So here we can start seeing how adversaries or, or, or how individual mimic their perceived adversary and how that influenced the the evolution of that particular technique. Eventually, uh, we start seeing the a replication first with with the the vehicle ramming attack in uh, Charlottesville, but also a kind of new strain of vehicle ramming that emerges in the United States as a form of kind of counter protest against uh, Black Lives Matter. Uh, uh, protesters, which are slightly different in their, their characteristic. And then more recently, in the last couple of weeks, 
we've seen individuals on the left engaging in vehicle ramming attack against uh individuals that are seen as being linked to to militia groups or being linked to to um to more to the right um so essentially kind of you know that we don't really have time to do a full history of, of vehicle ramming but essentially the idea here is that we can use this notion of essentially looking at what is the context in which a new technique emerge how can we explain how a technique moves from one context to one conflict to another and what are the factors that lead to the adoption of this technique uh, by by other groups by other individuals that are linked to to other ideologies and i think doing so allows us to have a relatively more nuanced understanding of of a particular threat and the manifestation of that threat and my next question for you was what type of policy recommendations you could give based on your research. But I almost feel like you've answered that just now. But if you have anything to add, I will let you do so. So this is the, I think for this, it's important to to go back to these three kind of selection criteria that I've talked about, right? So the notion of feasibility, effectiveness, and legitimacy. So depending on which one of these selection criteria you want to uh, to affect uh, will lead to different uh, policy and different strategies. So if you're interested in kind of modifying the feasibility of a particular technique, then you can engage in things like um, um, control of, of certain goods, right? So for example, in, in most of the Western world, if I decide to buy a ton of, of fertilizer, I would pr- probably be visited by law enforcement. And the reason for this is that we've created control good systems around fertilizer in order to make a particular technique, which is fuel air bombs, much less feasible. But there's an issue with doing that, which is we know that there's something called a substitution effect. So when you make one technique less feasible, it's not like individuals that are hell bent on engaging in political violence will just say, Oh, well, that's it. I can't make my bomb or I can't rent this car. So I'm going to go home and order and call it. And what we think they'll choose another technique, which is relatively more feasible. And, and we've got a huge body of literature that tells us this. Um, so for, for example, we know that with the introduction of the metal detectors in the United States in 19, 19- Seven, uh, 73, we saw a massive reju- reduction of hijackings, but we also saw a corresponding increase in uh, embassy takeovers and kidnapping. So that's the first pl- place that policy recommendation can come in. It has to do with you can modify, you can affect how feasible a particular technique is, but it's important to, to remain aware that this isn't going to solve everything because there's that substitution effect you can also deal with effectiveness now effectiveness has to do with the post uh event response so how do you do in order to ensure that that individuals that have engaged in act political uh violence are not rewarded for having done so now one of the things that i show in my book is that terrorist groups who were successful in perpetrating their first 
hijacking went on to continue using the technique. Whereas individuals that were unsuccessful in their first two hijacking attempts largely abandoned this technique and started using something else. So our response after the fact can help us change, can help us affect this particular variable of effectiveness. The last one has to do with legitimacy. And this essentially has to do with how a group itself is going to, uh, it has to do with the normative preference uh, of a group. So what type of targets does a particular group find legitimate? But also most importantly, what type of targets does the group's sympathizers or constituency approve of? What type of techniques does a group um, constituency approve of? And this is one of the places where I think we find some really interesting cases. So for example, um, the PIRA started using a particular insidious technique uh, that was called proxy bombs, which essentially led, uh, essentially involved kidnapping somebody's family and forcing an individual to drive a, a particular vehicle near near a target, and then they would detonate the vehicle uh, with with this kind of un. So essentially, it was like an unwilling suicide bomber. And what happened as a result is that the dissident Republican uh, population in Northern Ireland condemned this particular technique. And most importantly, American sympathizers uh, and, uh, 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 to, to the IRA also were outraged by this particular technique. And eventually the IRA stopped using proxy bomb. So we know that groups are sensitive to how their constituency and the people that they're trying to appeal to will react to a particular technique based on how legitimate they think it is. And this is another place where I think uh, counterterrorism practitioners can come in and modify the, uh, the, uh, the variable through, for example, counter messaging, not necessarily about the ideology, but about the technique itself. And I, I found that when reading your book, I really could apply how you did the study, what you found to other instances of techniques and evolution. So I, I really do think that reading the book and understanding the process really helps to understand new things taking place as well as tackling them. So I mean, kudos to you for that, because I, I think your work is very long lasting in the sense that it applies to many different things and it can be used in the future um, continually. So um, that is one thing that I think your book really, really provides the field and also practitioners. Well, thank you. I mean, that, that's the hope, right? At, at the end of the day, um, I'm working in an academic environment. I'm an assistant professor, but I did spend several years working uh, as an intelligence analyst uh, so when writing this book, there was really two motivation. One of them was to push forward the, the theory or theoretical understanding in our literature about, about terrorism to make it much more rigorous, but also hopefully to provide policymakers and practitioners some tools and at the very least some strategies that they can, they can implement in order to affect some, some real, real life change.
Well, I think you did that very well. And we actually have a question that came in from one of our listeners, and it's to do more with your research on far-right groups and, and the far-right in general, but I think it can also apply to the book in particularly. But they ask, um, well, they, they say that they see a lot of syncretic blending with far-right different elements of the movement. So say like patriot groups, militias, incels, white supremacists, etc. cetera. Um, and they're wondering that if there are no significant changes to North America, uh, regardless of who wins the elections um, coming up this week, of course, that do you think we'll see in the future more of a binding of these loosely organized movements to create more of a face of right-wing terrorism in North America? So I think it's, it's a very interesting question. It's something I think we could talk about for, for an entire other show. Uh, I'm, actually, <laughs> I'm actually working on a research project right now uh, with, with Dr. George Walter at, uh, at Georgia State University um, in order to essentially look at the transnationalization of the far right. And essentially the kind of the thinking behind this project is that we have a lot of anecdotal evidence that in, in the last four years with the rise of, of the alt-right, um, there has been increased cooperation within uh, the far right internationally. And we have a couple of, we've got this anecdotal evidence. So for example, the Unite the Right rally had individuals that came from, from Canada. There was some individuals that came from Europe to attend that particular uh, event. You've got the Defend Europe campaign or the campaign uh, in, in the Alps, which has funding coming from, from throughout, uh, throughout uh, uh, Europe, but also from North America. We've seen instances of, for example, uh, Terence, when he committed the, uh, the Christchurch shooting, having written the name of, of individuals that are linked to the far right globally, including, you know, Alexandre Bissonnette, who committed the, the Quebec mass shooting, but also Andres Brevik and, and others. So we've got all this, this evidence that there seems to be this kind of movement where the far right is working more and more um, together. Now, I'm a bit skeptical as to how far this goes. And, and, and the reason why I say this is that I'm not sure cooperation within the far right is a new thing. Um, so recently I, I was listening to a, a podcast by a British, uh, by a British uh, civil society organization uh, called Hope Not Hate. And they were talking about their fantastic archives that they had and essentially how they had letters from British fascists in the 1920s hanging out in Munich, writing back home to their counterparts in, in England, talking about, you know, the, the, this chap that they were, they, they were looking, named, looking at named Adolf Hitler, who was doing some really interesting things. And, and perhaps there was some lessons to be learned in street mobilization. Uh, and it's, you know, so we're like not talking about, you know, talking about the late 19... We're talking about the 1920s, early 1930s, this kind of transnational cooperation happening. At the same time, I think what has changed is the, the nature of the environment in which these groups are happening, 
where borders have become smaller, where individual co can correspond a lot quicker, and where techniques can be diffused uh, rapidly. And, and we've seen this, right? So one of my fantastic master's students just wrote a thesis looking at 25 different far-right attacks and you know, doing something quite similar to my book, essentially tracing how the patterns of attack and the aesthetic of, of the attack itself uh, are diffused and are replicated and are mimicked by, by actors. Now, on the other side, are we, you know, uh, to kind of go back to, to the listener's question, which I think he's essentially asking, are we going to see an equivalent of like the Islamic state of the far right? Are we going to see an equivalent of like the, uh, the Al-Qaeda of the far right, a centralized large far right group? I'm not entirely sure. Um, my research on, on the far right in Quebec essentially has, has shown me that these groups fragment very easily for a variety of factors that range from like ideologically uh, ideological factors but largely from personal factors um so i'm not quite sure I, I i'm not entirely convinced that we are going to start seeing a kind of centralized far-right presence uh at least not just yet well, to wrap up the show, we always like to give our guests a moment to maybe touch upon something that we did not have time to touch upon in the actual question part of the, the talk. So I just want to hand over the floor to you to either have a final thought based on your amazing book or mention something that we maybe didn't address. So I, I think the one of the lessons in the book that um, I, I would like to stress has to do with imagination. And this is something that came out in the 9-11 uh, Commission report, the fact that the events that have led to 9-11 to, to were not only bureaucratic failures, but also failures of imagination. And one of the things that I show in my book, is, particularly in the chapter looking at airplanes as weapon of destruction, is simply how many cases of individuals seeking to crash airplanes into building had occurred prior to 9-11. So in many ways, the notion that, that, that a particular group would seek to do this shouldn't have been beyond the, the realm of what was conceptualized by, by policy, um, by, by, by policymakers or a, um, intelligence services. And I think in many ways, in order to do so, it's important to kind of routinize and even bureaucratize this exercise in imagination. It's also very important to not only focus on the large scale, high salience, high death count events when we're trying to predict trends, when we're trying to see how terrorism evolved but also looking at failed attacks, looking at how criminal elements are using similar technologies, looking at how hobbyists are looking, are using technologies. And doing so, I think, will give us a much better, uh, a much better understanding of uh, the, the threat environment in which we're living in. 
So if I was looking, for example, at a threat that's being posed by 3D printers, I wouldn't focus exclusively on the HAL synagogue attack, but I would also start looking at how hobbyists have used 3D printers. I would focus, I would look at how criminals have used 3D printers, because in many ways, one of my, I would argue, one of the biggest of terrorist doesn't come from a terrorist. It comes from criminal actors. So it is important to do the exercise that I've done where you systematically build these databases of every single instance related to a particular technique or a technique that you foresee happening and you evaluate what's out there. So that would be essentially my kind of my main takeaway is this important, the importance to do this kind of yeoman exercise of cataloging the small events of cataloging the seemingly insignificant event of cataloging the instances that are linked to political but that share similarities in, in the technique itself. And by doing so, it, it's amazing what uh, what you can see. Um, when, when I set out to write this book I was and this dissertation, I was essentially told by, by some individuals that I should look at a different technique, that hijacking had been studied ad nauseum, um, particularly because of its significance uh, in the 1970s and so on. But what I've realized is that there was a whole story prior to 1968 that hadn't been told and most importantly, didn't factor in our understanding of hijacking. So our understanding of how we got to 9-11 was a partial understanding at best. We were missing 30 years of very important development prior to, to, to the 60s. So that would be my, my final takeaway for, for, for scholars, but also for practitioners. Well, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Yannick. And I'm also glad that Scout made a, a background appearance, or should I say vocal appearance. <laughs> it's always great when we have pets on the loop cast of it. <laughs> but for our listeners, I really recommend reading Yannick's book, How Terror Evolves, The Emergence and Spread of Terrorist Techniques. And as I said, and as Yannick had mentioned, there's just so much in it that you take hijacking at face value. However, like I said, I didn't even know that this had taken place before, say, the 1960s. So there's this whole history, like you said, that has been left out of our understanding and, and that's really important to know, to actually know how to tackle these instances as well as new and emerging techniques. So once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. I highly recommend listeners to read the book.